It's so good to see you. Let's get started with number five of this present time. And let's begin as we always do with the Lord's Prayer. Let's look to the screen and pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Father, as we open our hearts to your word, I ask you to help me speak clearly and help us all to hear clearly. But we also want to pray over our nation, over our cities, our small towns, our, our rural areas. Lord, there is such incredible lawlessness and violence, so many things that would have been thought unthinkable not long ago or commonplace. And we appeal to you for help. We think about what happened in Memphis. We think about tragedy that has fallen upon um, so much of our nation. Lord, we're not able to pray over every event every week. There's just so much. But sometimes we feel like we've just hit a new low. And we pray for the blood of Jesus to cover us so that our blood will stop covering us. We pray for righteousness. We pray for justice. We pray for law and order. We pray for peace. We pray for unity. We pray for reconciliation. We pray that any greatness in our nation that has been lost would be recovered and restored. Help us Americans to love each other as we never have before. Help us to work together, serve together, and help us to realize how much you desire for our culture to be one of peace and righteousness, justice and mercy. Lord, we just ask you to intervene. It's easy, as we said last week, to give in to fear and fretting, but you are able to help us walk in victory and help walk this thing through to victory as we reflect your character. Lord, send healing to our land. Send mercy to our land. Send justice to our land. Send righteousness to our land. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have created Frankenstein's monster today. Um, there was <clears throat> an appeal for help that I was going to make, and the more I looked at it, the more I thought this is going to take about 20 minutes to say what needs to be done. And there was a message that had been on my heart for a while about um, the value of works. Works matter, as you can see in your notes. And the more I prayed over it the last uh, few days, I realized this is probably something I, I can use my appeal as perhaps a great illustration of the sermon. So this is a combination of, uh, of a commercial to the family and an admonition from God's Word. I want to, uh, 
I want to talk to you about our need. We need you to respond. Uh, it's an appeal for volunteers in so many areas. Um, one thing that happened with COVID, I think there was a lot of good things that came out of it. Nothing about COVID was good, but there were good things that came out of it. There were bad things that came out of it. I, I, it, it forced us into live streaming earlier than we wanted to. And I really think that's helped the church. I really do. I believe we are a larger church than we were before COVID. Uh, when you consider the uh, live stream congregation and the live congregation. Um, but one thing that COVID did that hurt us in most churches is it has created an environment where we think really our only responsibility is to plug in and tune in. And we have seen our volunteer base kind of drop. And we're having more and more people come back, but we have more and more volunteers stepping down or sometimes just not showing up. And it's created some problems. So we've got some problems. And uh, it's thankfully, it's not, uh, it's not financial. It's not moral. It's not ethical or doctrinal. We just need help. So uh, this is a shameless appeal to help. And uh, I'm going to tell you how you can help. And I'm going to take one area that is critical right now and use it to illustrate the sermon. Now, the good thing about this Frankenstein monstrosity is that as you see how long the introduction is, you can take heart because the introduction is about twice as long as the sermon. But uh, I think the introduction will help the sermon kind of come together. Years ago, uh, in fact, it was a few months before I came here as pastor, I had been in my fourth church as pastor. I'd been in two as a youth and children's pastor. And um, <clears throat> most of those places, uh, at least the senior pastor, I stayed like four years, three or four years. And uh, in retrospect, I looked back and I thought I felt like God sent me to those churches to learn something and to help with something. As I have grown older and been here for so long, I realized in all of those churches what happened is I came in during a cycle and there was a need during the cycle and God helped me lead the people through that cycle. And then when the cycle, I, I always left churches better than when I went to them, I think. And uh, it, at least the indicators seem to be that way. And uh, I, just before I came here, I had really gone through soul searching and I spoke to Jack Taylor. Jack had been at every one of those churches that I pastored except one. And uh, he knew them well. And he said, so what you're telling me is you don't want to pastor a church for three or four years anymore. And I said, no. I said, it takes three or four years for a church to really accept a pastor. And, uh, and I, I said, it takes three or four years to figure out what needs to be worked on in the church's strengths and weaknesses. I said, you, you, you don't, you're, you're not building for eternity with a three-year stint like you could if you stayed longer. He said, that's true. He said, I've done it all. I've stayed for a year. I've stayed for three or four years. And I've stayed for 25 years. And uh, he said, you are right. But uh, uh, he said, what you need to understand is that when you go and stay for more than two or three or four years, you're going to see that churches always go through cycles. He said, it'll look like this. 
He said, if you stay for two or three years, it can look like this. And you can leave a hero. Or you can say, uh, you know, the same dog ain't going to bite me twice. You know, I'm leaving. But he said, I guarantee you, if you stay 20, 30 years, he says, it's going to be this. He said, now don't misunderstand me. It's not good and bad. It's not high and low. He said, it's victories, challenges. Victories, challenges. He said, um, you're going to have days when the report is down here. You're going to have days when the report is up here. You're going to have days when morale is up here. Uh, you're going to have days when morale is down here. But if you're going to stay 20 or 30 years, you've got to walk the church through those cycles. And you've got to go through those cycles. You're going to be learning. They're going to be learning. He says, um, but there's a bond that is created the longer you stay as long as you don't stay too long. He said, the longer you stay, the, it, it becomes literally a family. And, it, and it's worth the effort. But you've got to understand, you're going to be up and down. And the temptation is to leave when it's down or become cynical when it's down. But all God has done, Jack Taylor said, is bring a problem to the surface that can be, he said, when problems come to the surface, it means they can be solved now. He said, it's like possessing the land for Israel. God didn't take them in the most direct route. And the Bible explains why he didn't do it. You know, when they, well, let me do it from your perspective. When they left Egypt, they had a straight shot into the promised land. But they, this is what it says. I think it's in, it's, uh, it's either in Exodus or Numbers. It explains that if they'd gone right into the land, they would have run into the Philistines first. And the Philistines, as you know, were the Borg and Klingons of the, uh, of the, of the ancient land. And um, God literally brought them down and around, and they came in on the other side, and their, their most fierce enemies were saved for last because God knew they needed to learn. They needed to grow. And he said, he said Stephen, you're going to have to learn that if you're going to commit long term, you have got to understand that every year is not going to be your best year. You're not going to have 20 years where one's getting better and better and better and there's never any kind of issue. He says God is exposing problems that need to be fixed. Here it is. So you can build on those programs and your next high will be higher. And uh, I said, I say, oh, yeah, I, I know they taught me that in Bible school. They didn't. They mentioned it, but I didn't have enough sense to understand what they meant. And uh, he said, that is the second most difficult job of a man that stays at a church for 20 or 30 years. And I thought, the second most difficult? He said, yeah, he said, that is the second most difficult task you'll have is for you to remember that and stay put and walk through it. I said, well, then what is the most difficult thing I'm going to, to, to face. He said, oh, hands down, the most difficult thing you're going to face is convincing the congregation of the same thing. He says, that's much more difficult. He said, um, if a congregation can ever get a hold of the idea that we can have victory after victory after victory, but after every Jericho... <laughs> there's an Ai. And after every Ai, there's Gibeah. 
And he said, that takes a family. That takes people that are committed. And it's, he says, we're getting more and more, and this was back, what was this? This would have been back in the early 90s. He said, we're just entering a phase when the church is going to turn into something you and I aren't familiar with. And uh, I had no idea, utterly no idea what he was talking about. Um, and he said, so just keep that in mind, and I'll pray that God will send you to a place that you can stay 20 or 30 years and see victories won in the midst of cycles. And God's done that. It's beautiful. God answered Jack's prayer. Uh, and he talked to me about a lot of other things. It, it, was, a, it was a real turning point for me. I, um, I thought about that through the years many times um, because I, I, I don't think a pastor just needs to stay forever. No, no, no. We're still sticking to the transition plan. I'm not, I'm not, I've not reconsidered and leaving. That's not it at all. I'm just trying to explain to you where I'm at. And um, I, I do think that pastors can do more harm by staying too long than leaving too early. But I think if you can get that sweet spot where the pastor loves the church and the church loves the pastor. And I, I have been so blessed. Um, you love us. You've welcomed us. You've followed us. Sort of like at my house the other night, Ramona was sound asleep and I was just contemplating the mysteries of life. I couldn't get to sleep. And I just, she was just, she was out. She had had such a long day. And so I kind of shook her shoulder. I said, sweetie, sweetie. She said, yeah, what's, what's wrong? You all right? I said, yeah. I said, I'm just, just checking in. I said, you're still crazy about me, right? And this just really happened. And she looked at me and blinked a couple of times. <sighs> yeah, I'm still crazy about you. <laughs> and I interpreted that to mean I'm crazy about you. There are some days I'm crazy for you. And there are some days I'm crazy because of you. <laughs> but I'm still crazy. And I thought, so I'm just checking, We're, you're still up to another 40 years or so. Yes, I'm, I'm up to another 40 years, if, if you'll let me sleep. <laughs> See, you can have relationships that work when you've got that kind of dynamic. And it's as real in a church as it is in a marriage or in a family. I thought about the book of Acts. I remember this is the long introduction. This is Frankenstein getting all of his parts sewed together, and I'm going to apply the electricity shortly. But um, <clears throat> see if it comes to life. But in the book of Acts, it was a church of miracles, of victories, of, uh, of amazing moves of the Spirit. And we all pray, Lord, bring us to the book of Acts. Send us back to the book of Acts. And that's a good prayer to pray. I, I don't think that's a bad prayer. I pray it regularly. But with those miracles and victories and, and growing churches and, and signs and wonders, you have an equal portion of persecution and suffering and loss but the beautiful thing is that whether the church is up here, like at Corinth where the Lord did special miracles in Ephesus, or whether it was down here where Paul was stoned and, and, and had to leave town, and uh, whether it, whatever spot you're at, there is amazing redemption. 
God is working in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you say, what do you mean cycles, Pastor? Well, the book of Judges is a classic Old Testament cycle. I don't know that there's any book in the Bible that talks about cycles any more than Judges, unless it's the book of Acts. But Judges, there was this sevenfold cycle, and it happened at least six or seven times, maybe more, but some of them overlap. So, I, I, but we can say at least six or seven times, um, roughly once every three chapters. Um, Israel goes through a cycle. They are living in blessing and peace. It's seven parts to it. Blessing and peace. Then they get cold and indifferent. And I want to tell you, it's a lot harder to stay plugged in with the Lord in good times than it is bad times. It's a lot harder to stay spiritually sharp in good times than bad times. And indifference and coldness would set in. Then the third thing is they would embrace some kind of sin. Either they would be lack in their worship of God or they would embrace other gods um, whatever it was, you see, remember God said to Israel when they went into the land, you've got to be careful that you don't embrace the sins of the nations because the reason I'm driving them out and sending you in is because of these sins. And if you embrace their sins, the day will come, I'll drive you out. Um, but they would embrace some kind of sin. And then God in his mercy now, in his mercy sends them an oppressor, sends them an, an enemy. And it was one of the ites usually, sometimes it could be famine or whatever. But when the oppressors came in and began to rule, um, I, I was teaching junior boys Sunday school and I said, do you remember who the bad guys were when Samson came along? And a little eight-year-old, she had, yeah, the Filipinos. And I, I said, no, 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 no. It was the Philistines or, or Philistines, I think is the way their parents said it. Yeah, 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 the Philistines. And, and then somebody said, well, who are the Filipinos? And I had explained that's not a Bible group. That was, it's in the, but we lost about 10 minutes during that Bible study. But the oppressors come in and then what do the people of God do? They call out to God. And this is what the Lord said in the Psalms. I think it's Psalm 50. He said, uh, call upon me in the day of trouble. When you have trouble, call upon me and I'll explain to you why it's not raining. Meaning their, their cycle of blessing was interrupted. Or why this oppressor is there. Or why this, that, or the other. He said, and then when I explain to you what you've done, he said, you will call upon me, I will hear you, and I will deliver you. And God, after they called out to him, he would deliver them. He sent them deliverers. That's where we get the name judges from. They were the ones that would judge Israel. And part of their judgment was to set things right. The last judge was Samuel. And you see in the life of Samuel that Samuel was transitioning between the uh, nation of Israel under a judge and the nation of Israel who had a prophetic voice. Um, now, now there've always been prophetic voices, but um, that was a, a typical cycle in the Old Testament. We see another cycle in the New Testament, but it's much more positive. In the book of Acts, we see fervency 
and we see worship, we see family forming, we see service. They love God and they love others. And then something comes that changes the playing field. In one, for instance, uh, in Acts 3 and 4, it was persecution. And the, the people were told they could no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus. There was severe persecution. And what was their response? They, they, they said, we didn't sign up for this. We, we serve a Jesus that gives us bread and fish. He didn't say anything about this, which wasn't true. So we're out of here. No, 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 no. That wasn't the response they made. That was the Old Testament response of the judges. They came together when they were threatened with, with annihilation. They came together and they prayed and said, Lord, we remember who you are. And we remember what you promised. We remember what you've done. So now, Lord, as we are faced with this, pour out your spirit upon us. And let the nations know that you are in charge, not them. And in Acts chapter 4, it says the place was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, meaning the Spirit came on them like he did back in Acts chapter 2. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. There were times that they found out there was sin in the camp. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I want to tell you, that is a tough revival to report. I doubt it made it to the Pentecostal evangel. You know, leading members struck dead, buried by union in the backyard. But I tell you what happened. God gives us this report, the Holy Spirit, severe judgment against sin. It says, and nobody joined the church anymore. Nobody dared to join the church anymore. Now the church kept growing, but what it meant was nobody just said, hey, it's a good thing to be a part of that church. I'm going to get a membership card. You see, in those days they thought it was, you know, it's like getting a Sam's card or a Costco card. You know, I can get a church membership card and I can get, I can get the favor of the Lord. And that stopped. People said, this is a serious business. This is a serious business following the Lord and being a member of the church. And loved ones, I'm not, I'm not saying people are going to die. I pray that never happens. But we need to take seriously our affiliation with church. And we need to understand that it's the bride that Christ loves. You don't monkey around with his sweetheart. I mean, I, that sounds self-serving. That sounds belligerent. I don't mean for it to. I do believe the Lord is restoring the fear of his name and the glory and honor of his house. And we need to take serving the Lord very seriously. Now, but, but what happens? The people were sobered. The people said, we need to step back and, and take another look. Uh, but what happened? The church grew. The church grew because they handled persecution right. The church grew because they handled fear right. Um, the Bible says that even their needs could become a problem. There were people that stayed in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. We know that church membership 
um, went from a few hundred, well, I mean in Jerusalem, we don't know how many there were. We, we know that Christ was seen of 500. We know that there were 120 in the upper room. I don't think that means that was all the believers. But they automatically grew by thousands with one sermon and one altar call. They grew by thousands. And that wasn't the only time that happened. So they are exploding at the seams. You need to understand the church was struggling to figure out how to meet all the needs and take care of all the problems. And it was not like, well, we just need to build another wing. They got run out of their primary place of worship, which was the temple. And they would meet from house to house and in public places. So it was a mixture of a big church and home churches. They would meet everywhere they could from day to day, breaking bread, teaching the disciples, teaching. And then all of a sudden, uh, they had a problem with the infrastructure. You guys still with me? In the Hebrew culture, widows were always taken care of. When you study the Old Testament, the Hebrews had a, space, a place of honor reserved for widows and orphans. In fact, one thing you did not want to do is mistreat widows and orphans. God said, that will get me moving faster than a lot of things will get me moving. And um, by the time we're in the mid-50s, maybe early 60s, there has been established what's called an order of widows. You remember when Paul wrote and he said, when you're adding to the, to the list of widows, in church history it's called the order of widows. He said, let them be 60 years old at least. He said, if they're younger, they're probably going to want to remarry. There's nothing wrong with that. He just said, the younger they are, the more they're probably going to want to remarry, which was perfectly legitimate. But he said, if you have someone that's past that normal age of marriage, they're 60 of older. And if you're 60 or older and want to get married, you can always be the exception to the rule. I bless you in Jesus name. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. We have, we have a lot of couples in our church that are in the second love of their life and they're, and they're older than 60. I won't say who, but <laughs> I will tell you this. One of our older than 60, 60 couples fell hard in love. I mean, they were just, they were sitting together and I, I thought we had conjoined twins. They were sitting so close because I can't see very many rows back. And uh, I remember thinking, I need to talk to I forget if it was Corey or Mike. I think it was Mike. I said, I need to talk to them, but just talk to the teenagers to just bring a little decency uh, into the service. And then when I got through the message and walked down, I realized it was a couple from our seniors group. <laughs> so you say, well, did you get on to them? I said, I, no, I looked at them. I was so proud. I didn't know what to do. You know? <laughs> But he said they need to be 60 and they need to be widows that don't have children who can take care of them because it's the responsibility of children in that culture. And, and I think it ought to be this way is the responsibility of children to take care of their elderly parents when they were no longer able to take care of themselves. So, and that was the rule. Whenever there was a widow in the family, orphans, the family took them, took them uh, into their family. And, but he said, if that doesn't happen, put them in the widows of or, uh, order of widows and take care of them. 
That is where our Catholic brothers and sisters got the um, ministry of nuns from in church history. The, The ministry of nuns came out of the order of widows. Now, nuns aren't all widows, but that was how it got started. Um, so they would have always been taken care of a widow in a Jewish culture, but you had thousands of people that weren't from Jerusalem that were now part of the church. They were Jewish, but they were Jewish primarily by, um, ethnicity and not necessarily conservative in their theology. And so a lot of them came from, um, uh, a, a pattern of life that was um, Greek or Hellenistic. And they were Jews, they were followers of Jesus, but they did not come from a culture where their family took care of them. And on the days when widows were fed, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be too tedious, but I want you to understand, um, the Jewish widows, I mean, it wasn't like they were separated, you know, a Jew line and a Gentile line. But the Jewish widows had passed muster and it was the law. They would be taken care of. And all of a sudden they're presented with Gentile, not Gentile, but uh, uh, Hellenistic Jews that had not been taught that way. And they had a meltdown and they began to complain, hey, you know, Sister Miriam is getting an, an allotment of food and because I'm sister whoever, uh, you know, I, I'm not getting anything. And there was a problem. Now, church, listen to me. This is the foundation of where we're going with works today. Churches that are growing will always run into roadblocks. They will run into brick walls. Um, the Bible says something that is so profound. It says, the stable is clean where there are no oxen. (laughs) Have you noticed the difference between your house when you were newlyweds and you have three kids? (laughs) Unless you are just a really gifted person or or obsessive compulsive, (laughs) your house changes from this scenario to this scenario. You know, when... When, when we had our first child, if the passy went on the floor or anything went on the floor, we would boil it and sterilize it. Uh, by the second child, we would just wipe it off, you know, real good. Third child, we would just suck the passy ourselves and give it to them. Fourth child, ah, five second rule, you just pick it up. The point I'm making is that you can have a clean stall, but not if you want to have life. And you can have a church that never has issues, but not if you don't want to grow. I mean, not if you want to grow. So the church will frequently come up on situations where the the stall is filthy and has to be cleaned out. Somebody sent me a cartoon right after Jeremy was born. It was two nursery workers changing a diaper. They said, this is disgusting. And to think this came from the pastor's child, you know. (laughs) Life. Life makes things dirty, 
but the alternative is no life. Now, God will bring churches to a place where there's something that will prevent life, and sometimes we don't even see it. And we stop growing, and there, that's the moment when we shine as part of the solution, or we uh, just become a weight and an anchor as part of the problem. You know, it's interesting, Judson Cornwall wrote a book, and he talked about the short path from incense to insurrection. In other words, he says the people of God can be in worship uh, and, and just exaltation and thinking this is like heaven to me. And in a relatively short period of time, they can be griping and complaining. And, and, and I'm not fussing at you. Pastors do it too. I'm thinking it's a tendency of the people of God. We can go from incense to insurrection in a moment. In fact, he illustrated it on the cover of his book called Incense to Insurrection. It begins with a hand lifted in adoration, incense, or worship. And the cover of the book shows that hand lifted in praise just doing this and becoming a fist. He said it takes very little flexing to turn from a flag to a fist. And we have to always be on guard against that. We have to always be on guard. Even the apostles were upset about something that God was doing. But when it was explained to them, they had the ability to shift from complete opposition to complete acceptance because they understood that if we're not careful, we're going to end up fighting against God himself. Now, we have to, we have to be careful with that. Um, well, there's so many ways I can go, but eventually I got to get to the rest of Frankenstein's parts. Um, we have a problem right now, and it is, I think, the biggest problem facing the church. It's not morals, as I said, it's not doctrine, it's not finances. Um, we need help with our children. And whether or not we get help with our children is going to, and I'm not trying to shame you into this. But it's going to decide whether we go to the next level now or if we have to stumble and fumble and wait perhaps years until another generation rises that says we're going to take this very seriously. Now, let me say this. We need help in just about every area because I think, as I said, I think what COVID did is it made us, it, it, I mean, we're not evil. People aren't living in rebellion. We've just tried to make it so easy for people to tune in if they can't come that it's created the illusion that you don't need to come. Um, and, and I also know that we have scores of people that are part of our church, maybe hundreds, but I know scores. I can name that many that are part of our church every week, they watch on live stream, but they can't come and work because they live too far away. They're, they're scattered everywhere and they are just as important a part of our church as those of you that are here today. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about. We're not talking about, and I can't give a disclaimer for everything, but we're not talking about those that are sick or have compromised immune systems or are just sick and elderly and their doctor says it's better for you not to come out into a crowd. I understand that. I understand that. But we do have people on that 
live stream only, that they have a vital, vibrant ministry on social media. They have a vibrant and vital telephone ministry where they're calling and encouraging people. So I, I, know, that, I know that some people, it's just not where you can serve. I know there are some people that it could be you're at a, a season in your life where it's just not practical for you to be involved in a hands-on ministry. We understand that. We're not trying to shame you. Um, uh, we're not trying to say you're not doing your part. We're, we are not even addressing those who can't come serve. We're addressing those who can come and serve. Is, is that clear enough? Pastor Corey, is that clear enough, you think? Okay, good. Now, a few years ago, uh, maybe 20, 22 years ago, we had the same problem. We came to the point where we were having an influx of children, and we couldn't we didn't have children. I mean, we didn't have a children's pastor. We had children's ministry. Thank God for those volunteers. Um, but we couldn't get enough people in nursery. Um, and we thought, well, what we can do is hire them. We don't, we don't want to, you know, we want our leaders in children's classes to be members of the church, devoted Christians, providing a covering over the children. But we can hire folks from outside. And uh, we, got a, we figured out how many we needed. And the only problem is that we couldn't afford even one, uh, much less the number that we needed. And you say, well, what did we do? Well, we said we're not going to give up a generation. We're not going to not serve. There were a handful of ladies, and I, I, I started to try to call names that I remembered, but sure as the world, I'd forget somebody. But I will mention my wife. My wife spent like four months in nursery every Sunday. And, and she wasn't the only one. There was a handful of people that went above and beyond. And in my opinion, they saved that growth spurt for our church. You say, well, how did we get out of it? Well, two things happened. Number one, it got so bad that I started preaching from the nursery one day. I had my mic on. I was in the nursery. And, and I think that woke people up when I, when I kept preaching and I kept going. And somebody said, you know, I thought you were just pulling a trick. And then you kept preaching from in there. Well, I didn't preach long, but I came in and I said, guys, I'm telling you, we need help in there. And, and I, I just made a gut wrenching appeal and we had enough people to sign up that we got over the hump and that set us free to minister to families. And we grew and before long we could afford to hire some nursery workers to go with our volunteers. And I, I want to tell you, that was a moment like the widows for us. We said we can't lose our focus. We have to stay on track, and God's going to have to help us see how to do this. You see, when a church uh, is following the Spirit, when a problem comes, they don't wilt and they don't shrink. Now, they did stop growing. A church can plateau. A church can plateau because it doesn't have enough room. A church can plateau because it doesn't solve its problems. Churches will have problems. And the apostles who were leading the church in Jerusalem, they solved the problem. They, they, they said, what has God called us to do? And boy, this sounds so arrogant. It sounds so arrogant. But they said to the congregation, it is not the right thing to do for us to wait on tables. Now, I would advise no man to say that to your wife. 
It's not wise for me to wait on tables. That's your job. That's not what they were saying. They were saying, and, and it, it loses some of this in translation, but they said God has called us to, to preach and to teach, to be in the Word and be in prayer. And the people agreed. So they said, we've got to do something different. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to create a new ministry in the church. I want you guys to give us ideas of seven men. The, the apostles were in charge, but they said, give us ideas of seven men that we can appoint and serve in this ministry. And they did that, and we were introduced to people like Philip and Nicanor and Stephen. Uh, and they not only solved the problem administratively, they not only got the food to the widows, but God gave them a brand new ministry that was accompanied by signs and wonders. Now, what does the Bible say happened? Two things. The people were satisfied. The complainers stopped complaining. And don't get me wrong, it's, it's, I'm not preaching the sermon against complainers. Um, but, but when we express a complaint, we need to understand there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And that's what few Christians understand. Um, the complainers were satisfied. And what was the second thing that happened? The church started growing again. You see, there will be things that the Lord will allow to stop the church growing in order for us to see it and fix it, and then we're prepared for the next level of growth. Some of the things that we've left churches for, some of the things we've left marriages for, some of the things we've left jobs for, sometimes it was God showing something to us that we could fix so that we could enjoy the next level of blessing. But so many times Christians spend their life running from one problem to another problem, to another problem, never understanding that God gives us these things as stepping stones. Warren Wiersbe wrote a book, I hate it. It's called The Rocks Are What You Climb On. I hate it because it tells me what I know is true about myself, and that is I don't like rocks. I will move rocks out of the way. I will take another path where there are no rocks, but he's right, the rocks are what you climb on. Now, it worked in the book of Acts. And the thing, whether it was about persecution or pollution in the church or this problem getting the ministry done, every one of them, this beautiful, every one of them, the church responded well and they grew. The, that, those three things marked the three phases of growth in the first half of the book of Acts. They're saying they're going to kill us. We'll go above it. There's evil in the church. There's hypocrites. We will go above it. Everybody's not having their needs met. We will find a way to do it. And in every time the church kept growing. That's, that is exciting. It really is exciting. Now, well, let's keep going. The stall is clean where there is no ox. So what we need, I, I, we, you heard today that we need food pantry workers. Uh, I know Pastor Mike. Mike, are you in here? He may be in the other building. Yeah, Mike and Rachel, they'll tell you they need help in, um, in union ministry. Um, Bunk, 
and Alyssa need help in the young adult uh, ministry. And um, that, that is something that is growing and is just so is expanding and exploding. Every department, Pastor Bella needs help with children. There's not any place that doesn't need help. And if you want to help, let me just tell you now, call the church office and tell them that you want to volunteer. But the appeal that I want to make today is, is just critical before we kind of wrap up and plug old Frank in here, Frankenstein. Um, I want you to understand that um, the thing that we're running into right now, God is exploding us in our 20s and 30s. And we are having people come in, precious people, treasures for our church. Um, we've, we've, we've got it from seniors down to newborns and every one of them is blessed and special and the best group of people in the world. I believe that, but God is doing something very special in our twenties and thirties and, and on into our early forties, lest I offend anyone. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and not only are they us, not only are they pro-life, they are prolific. That means for every young couple God brings to our church, they're, they're tagging along a handful behind them. And our biggest opportunity right now, you would think it's for the 20s and 30s, and it is, but we've got to understand the children that are flooding our church are a blessing and we have got to step up to be sure that we're ministering to them the way we need to. Let me tell you what I need you to do. I need you to volunteer to work in the nursery for the newborns to about three years old, I think. I need you to volunteer for that. And, and you can contact um, um, Joy Henderson if you're interested in volunteering to help over here in the nursery. If you're interested in like four through 11, I think I'm about right on that, you contact Pastor Bella. We have a huge group of ladies that meet here on Tuesday morning and they keep getting squat, they're growing and they keep getting pushed down because we can't find workers to take care of their children. Now, we need a few, and, and then we've got Wednesday night, we've got Sunday services, Sunday night youth groups. If you don't come to, to not youth groups, I'm sorry, small groups, if you don't come to Sunday night small groups, please just drive by one night and look at how many cars are here. I mean, there are some days it's, it's like, I wonder if there's more people here on Sunday night than Sunday morning. And we need, there's something about it. I don't know if it's something in the water, but so many people that come Sunday night bring a small herd with them. <laughs> and we are bumping, we're bumping in a, in, against our limits. We're having to limit groups because we can't get childcare. You say, well, just hire them like you did before. Can't we afford it? Well, we could afford it, but we're in a culture right now where nobody wants to work. And I know that's probably charged statement. I don't mean for it to be, but right now people don't want to work. We've offered to pay. They don't want to work. And so we're having trouble finding second level helpers to come in and work. 
And I know this is a dangerous thing talking about it on live stream because we don't know who's listening. Um, but, I, but I want to tell you, we don't need just people volunteering. We need people that are either members or are willing to be members. Or we need people that, if you understand, if you're going to work with our children, you need to have a background check. Now, we're not caring if you got three speeding tickets last month. We might not use you to transport children anywhere. <laughs> we, we're, we're not worried about you trying marijuana when you were in college and getting caught. I mean, that's not the kind of background check we're talking about. But we want to be sure that we're not putting child molesters or, or anybody that's dangerous anywhere near our children. Now, I've had people leave church because they think that is judgmental. But I want to tell you something. We love our children. We'll fight for our children. We'll spend money on our children. We're not putting our children in any place of danger for any length of time, for any reason. If we can possibly help it, we're very serious about that. We've had people leave the church because they said it's not worship when you come and there's police all over the place. I want to tell you something about these police. They are our heroes. And they, yes. You would, be, you would be surprised to know, and I'm not, I'm not talking about dozens of times, but you'd be surprised to know how many times there have been people with a questionable intent that come to the church. And our police stepped in. We've had people run when the police started approaching them. You don't run because you got a speeding ticket. You know, boy, that was a wrong thing to say in light of Memphis. I'm just going to go ahead and grab that one by the head, wrestle it down to the ground, tie it up. That's not what I'm talking about. I I'm, I'm, was trying to be funny. We, we, these people that ran from here, they were up to no good. It wasn't because there was some, some little thing in their life it, they, they ran when police got involved. And loved ones, we are committed to your safety. We're, we're committed to you uh, resting assured that your children are taken care of. And that's why we do that. And I'd rather lose a member over hiring police than have one incident where a child is hurt or anybody is put at risk. So you got to understand, we can't please everybody. And we learned a long time ago, we're not even going to try because that gives us ulcers. We have to take medication and the things that need to be done just don't get done. But if you're willing to be a part of making ministry happen and you're willing to jump through a couple of hoops, we need you to help us find your ministry. Today, the appeal is for childcare. And, and we need everybody to not only come, everyone is welcome, everyone is part of the family, but we also want you to know every family member has some chores. We need help. And you say, well, I've raised my kids, I've, I've done my time. I know, but you're being resentenced. <laughs> you know, you say, I've raised my kids. I'm a grandma. I'm a grandpa. D do you realize that nobody understands those little ones quite like you do? Nobody has the patience with those little ones like you do. That's why our grandkids come and get anything they want. <laughs> we say, oh, I don't give them everything they want. You only don't give them what you can't afford. 
You give them everything you can afford. You know, nobody, nobody has a spot for children quite like a grandma or a grandpa. And you can be a part of giving those young moms that are in the fight for their lives. You are able to give them a break to attend a Tuesday Bible study or to attend a, a, a Sunday morning service. And you know, if we had even a healthy percentage of our members that are able to do so, to just volunteer and say, I'll just do it, I'll do it a Sunday a quarter. I mean, once a quarter, I'll go and help. You don't have to teach. You don't have to come up with curriculum. We just need hands-on with our children. We need eyes to watch. We need guardians to protect. And if, if every, even, if, even if half of the people that could would just call and say, hey, I'll help. I can't do much, but I'll do a Sunday a quarter. Or I'll do, I'll do Tuesdays for a semester. Or I'll do every other Tuesday for a semester. I want you to know that would be the equivalent of us finding out how to feed the Hellenistic widows. And it sets the stage for more ministry to be done, and it sets the stage for the church to grow. Now, that's my shameless commercial. Um, we, we need you, and if you are interested in whether it's Sunday service, Wednesday night, um, small groups, or, or Bible studies during the week, if you think there's a place you can help, um, if you want to talk to the leaders directly, you can call Pastor Bella for, like I said, ages 4 through 11, I think I'm about right on that, or, or call uh, uh, Joy um, Henderson for newborn to about age 3. Or if you say, well, what are the other options? I mean, do you need somebody to do this or do that or the other? Just call the church. You can either connect with a pastor or my assistant, Vonna. You can talk to her. She can direct you to anybody you need to talk to. I am saying we need help. Now, to those of you that, are, that listen online and you can't do that, please don't be offended and don't feel pressured. We're not talking to you because we know you can. But if you can, even if it's a little bit, even if it's occasional, I beg you, if, if my knees were in better shape, I'd get on the floor and beg you to, to think seriously about helping to fill this niche. You say, well, aren't you kind of embarrassed to do that? No, no, because he said to pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send laborers into the harvest. That's what I've been doing. I'm just helping him out. There was a church I served where a grandma said, we, we had the same problem. We were a church of about 160 and, um, oh, we're not even going to be able to get to the sermon, hardly. It was a church of about 160, and it was a military church. And during Desert Shield and Desert Storm, of that 160 people, I think it was 103 transferred out. They were military and either went to war or went to fill the place of someone that was going to war. So out of 160, 103 left. And... Um, you say, well, how did you fill that? Well, that, that was only one problem. The other problem, which is a good problem, God's blessings often have dual citizenship. They're, they're blessings and problems. Um, and and uh, not only did we lose 103 of 160, 
But at the end of that same period, even though we lost uh, almost two-thirds of our congregation, our attendance was right at 300. So do you understand that we had two new churches come in while one left? And we, we, were, just, we were overwhelmed. Most of our church was young military families with a lot of children. And I, I cornered a grandma. I said, and I won't say her name because I'm sure her family's still alive. She's in heaven and is agreeing with me on everything now. But, uh, you know, I've, I've lost two brothers and my best friend in the last few months. And I told Ramona, I said, you know what's weird? All my adult life, I've been the theologian. If anybody had a Bible question, they came to me. And I said, I just realized that I probably got the worst theology of all of my family now because they're in the presence of the Lord and uh, they've got it all right. So uh, I said, uh, I said, we need you to work. She said, I have done my time. And at that time, I thought she was old. She was probably 62. <laughs> I was probably 32. And I said, I need you. I need you in there. And I, she said, look, they had the babies. Do what I did. Go in the nursery. I said, but weren't there times you'd like to have been in service? She said, yes, but nobody would be, nobody take care of my kid if I didn't go do it. I said, but we have an opportunity now. Nobody understands those children. Nobody understands those mamas like grandmas. And I said, and you are one of the best grandmas I know. And she said, well, they do tell me I'm the best grandma. <laughs> and I said, see, see, I need you in there. And she said, all right, I'll talk to secretary and I'll do it some, but not every week. I said, I don't want you to do it every week, but you would make the life, a, a life of difference in the life of some mother and some child. She said, okay. She walked away. She took a few steps and I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. She comes back and she says, you just schnookered me, didn't you? <laughs> I said, all I'm saying is we need you. And she ended up being one of the best workers we had. And when I left that church, she thanked me for shaming her into working there. And I, I hope I didn't do that. But it was, it was a beautiful thing. Now, I tell you what, we're going to have to, you're going to have to read the notes, I guess. But what I wanted you to know about works matter, let, let me just, let me, I tell you what, give me the 10 minutes we've got left before sign off to just walk through this very quickly. The first major point is that Christianity is unique among the religions of the world. Now, remember, we're speaking in terms of works. Um, we are grace and faith. Not grace and works, not faith and works. Uh, I, I told my pastor one time, I said, Pastor, somebody in Sunday school told me that it takes faith and works to go to heaven. It's like being in a rowboat. You got one oar that's works and one oar that's faith, uh, faith. And if you just do one, you just go in circles. But if you do them both, you get to the other side. And he said, Stevie, there's one problem with that. And I said, what is it? He said, we're not going to heaven in a rowboat. He said, we're going to heaven because of the grace of Jesus. He said, we're saved by grace and we stay saved by grace. And faith factors in there. Um, 
Uh, D.L. Moody was speaking to someone who thought they were going to heaven, but they weren't Christian. And he said, well, explain to me how you believe a person goes to heaven. And Moody, after listening to the explanation, said, oh, you know, we're not as far apart as you think we are. He said, we're only two letters apart. He said, your religion is about D-O. Christianity is about D-O-N-E. It's what Jesus has done. We are the, the, the royalty that wear a robe that we got when we traded in our rags. Our works. Now, we ought to have works. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. But, boy, this is such a good sermon. I wish I had time to preach it now. But, um, you know, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's not, that's not your sin. That's not the worst things I've done. I can't imagine what the worst things I've done are. The best things I've done are just filthy rags. But I am clothed with his robe of righteousness. Um, as, as we've said here a lot of times, works don't take us to heaven. They follow us, follow us there. Second thing, just real quickly, I want you to think of works in terms of obedience. It's a synonym. Works doesn't just mean I do something because you can have bad works, insincere works, false works. It's not just doing things, but real works of righteousness can also be called obedience. Obedience. Um, works are our response to grace and favor, not the initiator of it. You remember in chemistry class, an initiator in chemistry was a substance that starts a chain reaction. A lot of times we think our works are an initiator that gets God to love us. We fast to get him to do something. But our works, all of it is just a response to what he initiated. John put it this way, we love him because he first loved us. Everything begins with him. Now, why do works matter? Uh, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. We're going to be done on time um, using the late cutoff time. Um, <laughs> why do works matter? And, and listen, I, I know this is a, a mindset change. And it's not easy to do. People don't change their core on this unless they learn enough to change or they hurt enough to change or they understand enough to change or hopefully they love enough to change. Here's why works matter. Number one, works largely determine our level of intimacy with the Lord. My works never take me to heaven, but my obedience does determine my level of intimacy with the Lord. In other words, the key word is pursuit. Uh, works are based out of my pursuit of the Lord to love him, please him. Number two, works form the basis of our reward in heaven. The key word here is stewardship. We are going to be judged at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. We're not going to be judged on our faith. We already have that foundation laid. It's the blood of Jesus. You and I will be judged, but we're not going to be judged on whether or not we're saved. That's already decided because of our decision with Jesus. But our works will be examined and will be determined whether they are wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, precious stones. We will find our reward in heaven based on our works, 
that had nothing to do with our salvation. Number three, works are a key way to express our love for Jesus. In other words, if we uh, want to express our love, we obey, we do works. Jesus said it, and it sounds so manipulative because when we say it, it would be manipulative. But Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. Young ladies, I want to tell you, some jerk of a guy will tell you when you're out parking somewhere, he'll say, if you love me, if you love me, um, take two fingers and jab him in the eyes, <laughs> push him out of the car and drive yourself home. If you love me, that's the height of manipulation. Jesus isn't saying, well, if you loved me, you'd obey me. Jesus said, I know you want to love me. I know your desire is to love me. Best way you can love me is do what I say. Obey me. Works are the foundation of the legacy we leave behind. All of us, unless the Lord comes and takes us all home, are going to face the day like Bob Salinas is facing today, uh, where we're going to be in front of a group of people and a pastor is going to talk about us. And uh, it's easy to talk about somebody like Bob Salinas. He was a godly man. And it is so honored for me to be able to do his funeral this afternoon. But for all of us, everybody in the service, regardless of the pastor's words, when they hear your name, they are going to be flooded with memories of what you did to be part of the solution. Or they're going to be flooded with memories of what you did to be part of the problem. And loved ones, I want to tell you, you are leaving a legacy behind and your legacy is going to be determined by your works. What are the Christian life lessons? Intimacy, or you can use the word security, has to do with how close we can become, not how far we can stray. We've preached grace. We've preached security of the believers. We preach the security of the believer a lot stronger than most AG churches do. We're not Calvinists. But we, we preach the security of the believer. But in the mind of most people that have been in a works mentality, security means I can do this much and still be saved. But intimacy and obedience doesn't say I can do this much and still be saved. Intimacy and security says I have the opportunity to draw as close as I want to. I can draw as close as I want to. Number two, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as the old song says, the things of this world, uh, things of this earth will go strangely dim. I, I didn't understand that song when I was young because what, strangely dim, what, what does strangely dim mean? And I began to find out as I got older that things that I thought would never grow dim are strangely diminishing. Things that I thought once I couldn't live without, they matter less and less and less. And things that I thought were just good, especially for the old folks, they're getting brighter and brighter and brighter. Now, I, I know that we can be in different places. It can be because of our age. It can be because of circumstances, love or singleness of purpose. But I'm telling you this, a person that is falling in love with Jesus, whatever it looks like, in their life. doesn't mean that everything's fine, but the things of this world are losing their luster. Okay. And here's the final thing. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. We've got to let that sink into our heart. You see, going back to our theme text for this series, I am persuaded, some verses say, but I like 
what I think is a better translation. For I reckon, I've done the math. I've looked at the pros and cons. And I have figured out that whatever I suffer in this life is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. We are becoming something, as C.S. Lewis said, we are going to be like him and we are becoming something that if we were to see a really fully resurrected saint, we would be tempted to bow and worship them. That's why John said, beloved, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him. We shall be like him for we will see him just as he is. Loved ones, don't let your future glory be tainted by stuff, by stuff. I'm going to my friend Terry's funeral and I've been asked to speak at that this week and Pastor Corey's preaching Sunday so I can do that. I ask you to pray for me. And for those of you that know uh, Terry, if you want to watch the funeral, they're live streaming at the funeral home. I can't remember the name of it, but I'll, I'll, we'll get it into the office. But I was thinking last night as I was praying for the family, and I was thinking if Terry appeared before me right now, I probably wouldn't even recognize him except for his gator hat. <laughs> and he would tell you what my mama would tell you, what my brothers would tell you what Paul would tell you, what Martin Luther would tell you, what John Wesley would tell you, what Victor and Nell Smith would tell you. What we went through is not even worth being mentioned in the same breath with what is here. Father, we're out of time. Whether you're here or in Brown Chapel or listening online, if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is your time. Um, the ministry team is moving into position up front here at the altar. Please come ahead now. They're here to pray for you if you want to give your life to Jesus. Same thing's happening in Brown Chapel. If you're listening online and you want to give your heart to Jesus, call the number that is, if it hasn't already appeared on your screen, it will in just a moment. We'd love to pray for you. But there are two things we want to happen in this altar call besides that. Number one, if you have a need for healing, for help, a burden, come to the ministry team. Let them pray for you. The second thing that we want to happen is I want you to give serious thought in the next 24, 36 hours. Lord, what can I do to be a part of the work team that can get us to the next level here at Christian Life? Loved ones, I, we need you. We need you. And I hope you'll take this very seriously. I love you. God bless you.